Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, Moro Sanbonani, Koyomora and Bokertov. Welcome to the IRR show. Independent, relevant, and real. You will have gathered that I'm not Daddy, Big Daddy Liberty. He's down in KZN uh, filming and interviewing people sitting in government hospitals waiting to be seen to give us an idea of South Africa's real health crisis. I am, however, Saragon, and I will be flying solo today. Now, we bring you... Every Tuesday we bring you news and politics and we discuss it and debate it and get very serious about it from a classically liberal perspective. And our analysis is based on hard facts and thorough research. Our opinions are varied, sometimes unexpected and often controversial. We divide the show into three segments. In the first segment I'll talk about a number of issues that are in the news currently uh, and there are always issues in the news currently, so that's uh, usually not a problem. The second segment, however, is the the main um, the main part. And today, we our guest will be Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, who's head of policy research at the IRR. Um, Anthea is an expert on a whole lot of issues, but particularly at the currently national health insurance, and this is something we have got to got to discuss. So in the final segment, we'll just either pick up the remaining issues, continue with the talk depending on how we've gone, and look at perhaps things we should read or consider or think about or listen to before we sign off. We'll be back with you after this ad break. Hi, sister. Hi. On time as usual. Mom's just woken up and expecting you. I'll, I'll see you later. Give yourself the peace of mind that allows you to get on with your own life while knowing that your loved one is being cared for. Sedema's countrywide network of medical professionals and caregivers are available for individuals and retirement homes. Contact us at info at sedemahealth.com or on 86 Sedema Health, bringing you and your loved ones care with dignity. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the IRR show, and we would dearly love to hear from you. And to this effect, you can either contact the studio, which whose number is zero one zero one four zero three zero two zero, or send a telegram zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine, or finally, you could just send an SMS to three four. Five one nine, and let us know what you th- what you think, and whether you agree with us or not. In the segment, I'm going to look at a couple of issues in the in the uh, current news cycle, shall we say? And the first thing is the interesting left wing, far left wing criticism of the new appointment as CEO to ESCOM, Mr. Andre Dureta. Now, there was a shall I say impassioned media release from the from Irvin Jim, who is the General Secretary of the National Union of Metal Workers. And he basically felt that the whole transformation project had been undone by appointing, essentially appointing a white man to the job at the expense of good black um, managers, particularly female managers. Now, 
there are two things that are interesting about that. One is that in the ANC in appointing him has taken a much more inclusive line and it basically the right person for the job line rather than, you know, do, does he fit our transformational objectives of, uh, of color and, 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 and sex or gender. And the other thing is that we discover that Dorator and Irvin Jim bumped heads together when, when, uh, Dorator was still a CEO of NAMPAC, which suggests that, uh, Irvin Jim does not feel comfortable that there will not be retrenchments at CEO, at, uh, ESCOM under, uh, Andre Dorator. Um, but it's, it's really, I'll tell you what's really interesting is that before Dorator was appointed, apparently 27 top black executives were approached for the job and all declined to apply. All of them said no, said some, one insider. A lot of black executives don't want anything to do with state-owned entity, the entities. They feel there's too much political interference, said a government source. Another one said that the SOEs have ruined a lot of careers and reputations. It's where careers go to die, and a lot of black executives are saying no to them. ESCOM, as the apex SOE, is even worse they won't, they won't touch it. So it seems like Irvin Jim was really wrong in assessing that the transformation project has come to an end. Then another thing we can look at is uh, the sort of outburst, can I put it that way? It was a media release by Jesse Duarte, the Assistant General Secretary or the Deputy General Secretary of the ANC. She had a, a real go at the ANC for its racism towards Black South Africans who are not Africans, in other words, coloreds or Indians. And it seems that, I mean, it's quite extraordinary given the fact that J.C. Duarte has had a very long career in the ANC and she's held a decade at least of high appointment within the ANC hierarchy. So she must, something must have happened to make her, to make her really come out with the idea which we certainly have seen for, for very many years that the ANC's emphasis is um, black Africans and other minorities, other than white minorities, are featuring less and less and getting far less attention. So I think that is an important comment and break from the, uh, the current, uh, shall I say, perceived wisdom. The... Um, what's her name? Rampele Mampele, who I wouldn't li- like to go through all her, her uh, uh, credits, but she was the vice chancellor of UCT and she nearly w- went into an association with the DA some years ago. And she also seems to be talking about the fact that it's become like a religious um, right that, that, or obligation not to criticize the ANC. And from our, our perspective as the IOR, this has become Incredibly, incredibly important. Then there is the none too pleasing news that ESCOM has threatened to cut off the, the municipality of Bloemfontein for, from the hours of like 5 a.m. to 6 or 8 p.m. for the failure to pay the amount owing to ESCOM. Now, this may have a wake-up may be a wake-up call to all those municipalities who do do owe ESCOM money. But if they were actually unable to pay that amount and ESCOM were actually prepared to go along with the threat, it would cost in its own way a a whole pour on South African politics and I think it would have a huge effect on whether Moody's does downgrade us in, in 
uh, in February or March or, or not. Certainly Standard & Poor's has already downgraded us further, and the IMF came out yesterday saying very politely that South Africa must reform. Uh, yep, South Africa must reform, and I don't think there's anyone who would uh, disagree with that. Perhaps another interesting item, and this applies to the DA, is their reappointment of Gwen and Gwenya as their head of policy. Now, Gwen was essentially poached, for want of a better word, from the, from the IRR to, at the request of Muzi Maimani to head up policy under his watch. And clearly, there must have been an expectation of, of the sort of line that Gwen was going to take, particularly on an issue like uh, black economic empowerment and race as a, as, a, as a proxy for disadvantage. When she ultimately found that she wasn't being heard or being paid attention to, it got very frustrating and, and she resigned from the position. The new or, or the interim federal council and the leadership of the DA has essentially appointed her back. I, I have to say I don't know what processes had to be followed, but certainly the indication, the appointment of Gwen seems to suggest that they are considering a much less race-obsessed view and hopefully an, a, a, a race-not-obsessed view of how a policy is devised in this country. It, that is going to be very, very interesting to watch. Then perhaps we can look at the fact that Tom Moyani, who probably single-handedly destroyed the uh, SARS, the receiver of revenue, has been granted permission to cross-examine Proven Gordon at the Zondo Commission. Now, my colleagues felt that, you know, so what, you know, the Zondo Commission is just trundling on, and until, it, until we see some arrests, it's really not going to make a hell of a lot of difference. But this should at least be, if it happens at all, it should at least be highly watchable. Um, it, let's put it let's put it this way: it'll bring back the sense of theatre to the Zondo Commission, which is goes through patches of sleepiness. One has to one has to admit. Now, the the other things that 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 we can perhaps look at, and it suddenly occurred to me just to go back to Jesse Duarte's comment. There may be another element to it, and that is the fact that there, there seems to be real trouble heading towards Ace Magashula, the Secretary General. And I'm, I'm not sure, I'm very, I'm not sure she's looking at being, taking over his job so much as the fact that he's no longer being likely to be as protected as he once was. And this could mean problems for her. And accordingly, she's positioning herself to, she, she, sorry, she's positioning herself possibly, and here I'm, I'm theorizing completely, perhaps to go to a party like the good party where the emphasis of the leadership is not on the African majority. Just a thought. Maybe, maybe not. Let's go to the next ad break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the IRR show. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey colleague and the head of uh, policy research at the Institute. And our particular area of, of focus today is going to be the national health insurance. And it's particularly pertinent because at the end of the week, the opportunity to make representations to, the, to Parliament on the NHI, positive or negative, comes to an end. So I'm going to lead in with this, Anthea. Um, basically, 
we have a, a con- there's a constitutional right of citizens to have equi- access to quality healthcare services that are delivered equitably, affordably, efficiently, effectively, and appropriately based on social solidarity, progressive universalism, equity, and health as a public good and social investment. This is the idea that has been put out by the World Health Organization to the world's countries for for governments to meet the needs of their people in, the regard, in regards to health. To this extent, the government has put forward the National Health Insurance Bill. Does it do that? I think the, the National Health Insurance System is a really bad way of trying to achieve the W. The, the World Health Organization goal of universal health coverage. And that goal is, of course, an important one. But the WHO has also emphasized that no country can afford to provide free health services to everybody because in the end it will bankrupt any country that attempts that. So they, they have a much less ambitious view of what uh, countries ought to be doing in order to meet the health needs of their citizens. But I think if we look at our own constitution in section 27, it talks about the need to achieve the progressive realization of access to health care. But it must be done in a, through reasonable measures and it must be done within the limits of the state's available resources. And the NHI, for reasons that one can explain at length, is simply not a reasonable approach. And in addition, it will cost so much at a time when the economy is limping along, that it can't be seen as, as being affordable either. So perhaps one should talk about why it's not a reasonable approach. Mm-hmm. And the essence there, I think it's important to begin with what our former health minister said, Dr. Aaron Mozzoletti, that the aim when the NHI becomes fully operative is to collapse all other medical schemes into the NHI fund so that this fund becomes the sole state-run medical aid for the entire country. And that's an extraordinary idea because, first of all, it means there will be no other medical aids, no competition, no scope for innovation. Secondly, it means that the government is again to give itself a monopoly over the provision of health care. It also means that we're going to have to trust the NHI fund as a huge state entity, bigger even than ESCOM, to meet all its obligations efficiently and without corruption. It will be in charge of a very big pot of money, And from that, it will have to pay all health professionals, we hope, on time and efficiently. And it will also have to pay for every single medical good and service that is needed for 60 million and more people right across the country. And if it falters on the task of paying for all those goods and services, then we will see the kind of stockouts and the inefficiency that now plagues the public hospitals and clinics spreading into the private hospitals, clinics, and private practices because none of them will be able to go out and organize their own supplies. The NHI fund will be the single purchaser, the single payer, and it will have to be relied upon to make each and every payment that is required for each and every health good or service right across the country. That's actually a terrifying thought because I understand that the NHI, the, the, the um, sorry, application of it has not been costed by government. So we, we're really looking at costing to, insofar as it can be done by various uh, experts in the private sector. And I, I gather that just to get it started, one's looking at in the region of 500 billion a year. I think that's probably right. 
Um, our current health minister, Dr. Zweli Mkize, said a little while ago in Parliament that he didn't think it would be enough to take what we currently spend on public health care, which is roughly 220 billion this mm-hmm. year, and what we're spending on private health care, which is 250 billion. So together that comes to 470 billion, and he thinks that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's also realistic because all health care costs in both the public and the private service go up by about 6% a year. And if you take into account just that impact between now and 2026 when the NHI is supposed to come into effect, the more likely figure is close to 700 billion. And then, of course, that will be for a single year and costs will go up, increasing <laughs> by 6% a year. So very quickly we go to quite astronomical figures. And that really is why the Davis Tax Committee has recently warned or warned back in 2017 that the NHI was not sustainable unless we had much faster economic growth. And recently the Treasury in its mini-budget in October 2019 also warned that the NHI, as we've been, the government has been thinking about it for the last 10 years, is no longer affordable given our macroeconomic and fiscal situation. Well, well that, that's, that's what I was coming to, is the fact that the demands on what the society needs from government, from the fiscus, just not going to be able to they would not be able to do anything else but provide provide health care um, the other thing that really <laughs> that really fascinated me is that w- we've had a huge amount of criticism for a number of years at, at the declining quality of public health care and here you're looking at essentially the same people centralizing a system when generally as much decentralization as possible Is, is, is preferable and having to be responsible for paying absolutely paying out for absolutely every aspect of health care now I've recently written an article about the fact that at the, now after decade of a decade of turmoil what's sinking the construction industry is the fact that ser, uh, service co- companies that are servicing the big construction companies have not are not being paid by government and if they don't pay the service companies to construction, it's got to happen in, in the, uh, in the, in the um, health sector. Indeed. And if you look at some of the stats, um, I think by March 2019, there was something like 7.1 billion that was outstanding to mostly more su- small suppliers on invoices more than 30 days old. And that figure keeps going up. And it's very often the provincial health departments that are most at fault, except for the Western Cape. <laughs> And uh, uh, Jack Bloom, the DA spokesman for, for health in Karteng, talked about, um, as I recall, almost a thousand companies that right now are owed something like 1.7 billion and have been owed that amount for more than a year. And if you look at it, some companies have waited for three years, some have waited for five years, and they're still waiting to be paid. So in this situation, you get companies going bankrupt because mm-hmm. they can't get paid by the state. But you also critically get suppliers cutting off, saying they're no longer willing to do business with the NHI fund if it's going to be so slow in paying them. Mm. And then the massive problem of not having health goods and services available anywhere is going to just expand. I, I thought of a, an example that would have personal implications for me and, and I think very many of the people listening to this program, and that is that can you imagine a situation where the government runs out of chronic medication Public, for, for people who would normally be in the private sector or the public sector. I mean, chronic medication by its nature relies on you having a supply that you can, you can easily and quickly access. If you don't, um, 
the health outcomes are just going to worsen. Absolutely, and and we know that stockouts of essential medicines in the private in the public sector are common, that ARVs run out, that any number of of other essential medicines regularly run out. And that's often because supplies haven't been paid or because there's a level of inefficiency in the distribution system where the, the drugs are actually sitting in warehouses but they're not being distributed further. Now, at the moment, if you have money, at least you have some other option. You can go to a private supplier and get the item that you need. Once it's all being run and managed by the NHI fund and there is no element of public health care that's outside the control of the state, that option won't exist, mm. and people will find that they're actually desperate for, for chronic medication that they need on a monthly basis and that hasn't been made available. Anthea, the idea of a, a single-payer system, how, how common is such a system around the world? It's very uncommon. There are very few countries that have gone for a single-payer system, mostly because it creates exactly this position. You have a monopoly. You have the scope for corruption and inefficiency. So Cuba is one of the countries that does have such a system. But um, its population is very much smaller than ours. They have mm -hmm. 11 million people. We have 60 million who are going to be on the NHI. Uh, they pay their doctors something like $720 US dollars a year, which means that, that there is more money to spread around the health system <laughs> than we would have here. Um, and there are all sorts of questions about what is the quality of healthcare in Cuba. One often hears it described as the best system in the world. But when you start digging a little more, which is quite difficult, there are quite often disturbing stories mm. about the unavailability of medicines, the difficulty of getting to see a doctor unless you're willing to pay some sort of bribe in order to jump the queue. And the other country that has a supposedly single-payer system is Canada. But Canada is different, I guess, from us in many ways, too, because, first of all, they're a highly developed, wealthy country. In addition, they have the U.S. next door, and many Canadians who get tired of waiting mm -hmm. for the single-payer system to meet their needs in Canada are able to go to the United States and get care there. In addition, they haven't actually put, a, put an end to medical schemes mm -hmm. in the way that we plan to do. Mm -hmm. So it's not a comparable single-payer system. I mean, since since... To the private sector, it's, the system is, looks just plain unworkable in every sense of the word. The government must know this. So are we subject to the possibility of having the system for purely ideological reasons? I think that is the essence of it. I think the government is well aware that they cannot supply the health services that they will promise. So why do they want it? Well, if you look at the ANC's ideology, they have for decades now been committed to a national democratic revolution. It aims to take the country by very slow and incremental steps away from our capitalist system, initially to a socialist one, and ultimately, when time is ripe, to, to a communist one. And a critical part of achieving a socialized uh, economy is to reach the point where the private sector has to put social needs before profits. And the NHI is all about that. Private hospitals will still be there. They won't be nationalized in the sense that the government won't take over their ownership. But they will be totally controlled by the government, which will decide on the fees that they can charge, the fees payable to surgeons and every other staff member within a hospital, what the prices to be paid for medicines, medical devices, etc. It will all be controlled by the state in order to put social needs before private mm -hmm. profits. And how many of the private hospitals will be able to survive mm -hmm. if their outgoings don't 
are not covered by their incomings is another question. But it promotes the socialist idea right. that we will put social needs before profits. It also very imp- importantly uh, promotes the idea that you pool what is being spent by people out of their own after-tax income on health with what is being dedicated to health from the budget by the government based generally on the taxes of that mm. same group of people. So you take the public funds, the private funds, you pull them in one mm-hmm. fund, and you make them available to everyone. And that's an idea which the government would like to extend into other areas as well, including pensions. Mm. <laughs> oh, dear, okay, we haven't even got there yet. Um, can you give us a, a sort of timeline or plan? What, what, what would a person from any person, private sector, public sector, do in order to go get to a surgeon or even get to a GP? What, what, would they, what do they envisage the process would be? Um, once the NHI is fully operative, uh, people will be expected to register at the primary level with a provider of their choice. So it could be a GP, it could be a public clinic. And that's where they will be expected to go, first of all, for care. So, sorry, um, so the choice is the government's choice? No, the, the choice is the individual's okay. choice. Um, but, of course, one must recognize that there are going to be very few public clinics and hospitals that will qualify to take part in the NHI because most of them do so badly on basic norms and standards that they can't qualify to be accredited. So the great mass of people will be trying to go and see private mm-hmm. providers. So the queues and the difficulty in getting to see a private provider of your choice, even if you registered with him or her, is going to be huge. But if it then turns out that you need more, uh, you need a more sophisticated level of care, at that point, the government will decide. The government will decide to what specialist you should go to, what clinic or hospital you should be referred. And uh, Dr. Mkiza has made the point that if you have the money and you want to go to a, a specialist, you might in some way have managed to survive on, on people just paying cash to him, which is unlikely, that you won't actually be allowed to do that because mm-hmm. the government thinks that would be against the whole spirit of the NHI, mm-hmm. where the government wants to be able to allocate the, the key resources. Um, can I come back to those norms and standards? Because we, we, we exposed a piece of information that I think is fascinating and put it in a, a whole area of perspective. The Office of Health Standards Compliance in 2018 carried out an inspection of 696 hospitals, public, public hospitals. Um, and the NHI requires that the hospital reaches a standard of 80% compliance in order to be under the NHI. In terms of the scorecard reached by this report, 1% of South Africa's public hospitals are 80% compliant. That means that 99% of hospitals could not function under, they would not be admitted to the NHI. That's right. Unless, of course, they lower the standards. But Mm. according to the standards that they have now, which cover things like the maintenance of hygiene, the availability of medicines, the sort of attitudes that staff display towards patients, 99% 99% of our hospitals cannot achieve the 80% pass rate mm. to participate in the NHI. So that means right. unless they lower the standards, we'll have really only private hospitals participating in the NHI. And the situation that we have now, where so many millions of people are thronging the public hospitals and clinics in a desperate attempt to get care, is going to be even worse because there are a smaller number of private hospitals than there are public ones. So those desperate people will now be swarming the private hospitals in order to get the care they need. It's, it, that's an absolutely bizarre situation, but it strikes me is that if government put all its efforts into 
um, improving hospitals to the point that they're 80% compliant, we wouldn't need NHR. We'd have functioning public hospitals, <laughs> well-functioning public hospitals. Absolutely. You know, the, the key critical need, if, we, if we're going to have universal health coverage at works, is to get all the resources being allocated to the public sector being used efficiently mm-hmm. because it's a lot of money. It's $220 billion this year, 4% of GDP, 12% of the budget. And um, so often we don't get very much bang for that buck mm-hmm. because of the level of inefficiency, because there's a lot of corruption, often in procurement. And so our first task is to get the public service up to speed and we could, um, for example, use public-private partnerships to help achieve that so mm-hmm. that we, we, we get the public sector cooperating with the private, with private people perhaps running the hospitals on the government's behalf so that, that we actually have efficiency brought to bear. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we can do to make uh, universal health coverage more real without the NHI is to give many more people access to medical schemes not get rid of them, give more people access to them. And that could actually be done quite easily. There was a a proposal put forward by the Council for Medical Schemes in 2015 that we should allow a low-cost medical scheme where the the cost per adult member would be 200 a month and they would be able to see a number of of primary providers, GPs, opticians, basic dentistry and the like. And that would be an important thing. It would extend medical scheme membership to at least 15 million more people. And so if we allowed the low-cost medical scheme and then if we redivided some of the budget and we provided health vouchers to poor households, then they too would be able to join low-cost medical schemes and have the benefits of private primary care without having to completely reorganize and, in fact, disorganize and destabilize our present health care system. Just a point to note, and we can deal with it after the break, is that of the 226 billion rand budget, 43% of that budget now goes to malpractice liability in public hospitals. But we'll follow that up as we come back to you after the break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the IRR show and our discussion on the national health insurance. But before we get back to the discussion, Anthea, thanks. I want to just pick up a little bit before going, ending the, uh, the discussion because it's both fascinating and terrifying at the same time. Just to look at the malpractice liability, the fact that 43% of the health budget is going, is being paid to the fact, by virtue of the fact that people are claiming for negligence or possibly worse in the public health sector. Surely, unless it, it basically works this way around, unless the hospitals are improved to that 80% compliance rate, all you're going to see is a number like that increase. Absolutely. It's, it's the most important need within the public health service to make sure that we don't have those kinds of cases arising anymore. The stories, as we, we've all read in the papers, are, are horrific. Maggots cr- crawling in the mouth of a, of a patient in a quasi-denital hospital. Oncology machines that haven't been maintained and can't be used. Uh, babies uh, being born with cerebral palsy because of, of complications, avoidable complications during the process of birth. And as a result, we've now got this 98 billion, which is the contingent liability for medical uh, legal claims, an astonishing amount. And one just does not want a state that has so profoundly failed to comply with you know, people's constitutional right to uh, access to health care mm. to be extending really its reach into what works best in, private, in, in health care at the moment 
what we need to do is preserve what works best and improve what works badly, not give the government control over the entire operation. I think on that astounding and terrifying note, I have to thank you very much for, for being part of this discussion and coming, coming forward to, to talk to us about what is a crucially important issue. Thank you. In fact, we have, we are coming to the tail end of a campaign that allows you essentially to support our, our, our position and our representation to Parliament. All you have to do is SMS LIFE to 32823 and you will be considered and signed up as a, a, a person who is opposing the NHI. For me, the, one of the most problematic aspects of the NHI is that most people who know the subject intimately will agree that the chance of the NHI actually ever coming to fruition is almost nil for all the reasons we've talked about today. However, the fact that they are pushing for it probably ideologically and to gain support of voters by saying, you know, this is going to be a great uh, health system for you, it's the perceptions that are created that I think are causing people to immigrate. And the reason I say that is because people will put up with a lot of uh, discomfort from a government. But when it comes to health, particularly as people are getting older, the issue becomes, am I prepared to take the risk that I will not be able to access health sufficiently? And as I say, you don't even have to get to the implementation. You just have to know that they're even talking about it. That is problematic. Perhaps I give the last word to Professor Alex van den Heerfer, who's a, a well-known health economist based at the Wits University. He says the NHI bill proposes to centralize what should be decentralized. The purchasing function should not be placed within a national structure as this is too, distance from, too distant from delivery and will institutionalize massive inefficiencies. I think massive probably isn't a big enough word for it. I'd like to, in this sort of open, open se- uh, session, um, and you still have the opportunity to telegram us to 061-895-1019 or SMS 34519. I'd like to recommend to you an article that I think is the best analysis of the DA's current situation that is available in the media at present. A lot of nonsense has been written. A lot of uh, opinions have been made without fact without facts to back them up. And this piece, I think, is really worth worthwhile. It's by Dr. James Myberg in his online publication, Pub- Politics Web, it's in, and it's entitled The DA and the D- Death, in quotes, of Non-Racialism. Um, if you go to the Politics website and you um, type in the title, The DA and the Death of Non-Racialism, the piece will come up. It is very, very worthwhile, worthwhile reading, particularly to get a view that is both comprehensive, factual, and meaningful. So that's today's uh, recommendation, which we don't, which, which we don't often uh, put forward. What we perhaps need to really look out for is uh, we talked about it very briefly, and that was that the FMF has told us to reform. And I know some of the, the radio hosts on other programs have said, well, you know have implied that this is a bad thing and the IMF is to be avoided at all costs. And hopefully it will be avoided, but not necessarily at all costs. Because if we don't do some reforming really quickly, the way we deal with ESCOM, how, whether we um, 
close SAA and sell off parts or sell all of it off if anyone's willing to buy it. The preparedness to retrench people to reduce an enormous, enormous um, public wage bill. Then we are definitely going to get that that third that third in three um, downgrades from Moody's, which will take us into junk status. And as soon as we're into junk status, the the ability uh, um, foreign investment in South Africa investment will flow out, and our the repayment our debt will become. Very, very expensive. Very much more expensive than it already is. And we're already struggling to deal with the debt that the government has got us into. And it is a, it is a situation the government has, uh, has definitely got us into, if I can put it that way. So, if, to the extent that you can put pressure on, uh, on the, the government in any way to do the right thing, uh, we look forward to it. Perhaps just to look at a, 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 an issue that's just come in and deals again with SOEs, and that is a lesser, lesser known SOE, and that's Alex Core, which is the state-owned diamond mine, which has been warned by its auditors that it's reliant on diamond sale business as a source of income is substantially risk. It's substantially risky, creating uncertainty for Alex Core future. So it's it, this is this is this sort of dreadful scenario is going across the SOEs. And I'm afraid, contrary to the to the left, to the unions, it's not about a matter of nationalising everything. It's it's denationalising as much as is humanly possible. Failing which we are um, we are, we are going to we're going to go into into a hole. I'm not sure we'll be able to climb out of. And I, I would like to uh, put forward good news, but uh, today, this morning is not the uh, the morning. Then just a fun piece um, that I just come across, and that is that a woman who left her job as a lawyer in London has just opened a pole dancing studio in Cape Town. Now, for all those amongst us who are sort of always desperate pole dancers who've never realized this ambition, this may, this may be a way to go. The article states that just over a year ago, my best friend told me she would be trying out pole dancing as a hobby. It quickly became evident that this hobby was turning into a passion of hers at witnessing her overall growth as a result of it. She inspired me. So perhaps if all else fails, privatize, private pole dancing studios are the answer to the problem. With that... Thought in mind, we go over to the uh, next ad break. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the IRR show. And hearing that that uh, art, um, advert, having read it myself, but hearing it now, I think we're going to need the Hi FM helpline to get us through the horrors of the NHI. And in in that respect, I'd like to once again thank Dr. Anthea Jeffrey for coming into the show to talk about a crucial issue that is just going to get more, what's the word I'd use, nasty as we, as we get on. And in order to contribute to making a rep- representation to Parliament, please SMS LIFE at 32823 and you will, be, you will, you will join that opposition. There are tens of thousands and hopefully hundreds of thousands of, uh, of 
proposals going in. What, of course, is a little worrying is that uh, our health minister, Dr. William Kize, is sort of doing a roadshow around KwaZulu-Natal to promote the benefits of the NHI. And I think that's in, in anticipation of public hearings where people like us will go to criticize it and the people that he's spoken to will laud it. So there's, there's probably quite a big fight on our hands. Otherwise, I would really beseech you to go to www.dailyfriend.co.za where you will read a lot of the, read about a lot of the issues that we have discussed. We have an, a, a new opinion every day. We have three news, uh, three new news items every day and that is seven days a week. We also have podcasts, videos and I have to mention we have access on our site to Big Daddy Liberty and his, his shows both um, the Big Liberty Show and Blacks Only, which are a hell of a lot of fun to to watch. So please come and come and see what we do and how we do it. It will very much give further insight into what into what we talk about now. What we will then do is next week we will be back to hopefully put forward a, another detailed and fascinating uh, program and an issue that might or might not be as depressing as this one was, but we do feel it's necessary to keep you up to date, well informed, and make you, put you in a position to respond to what the government is presenting to you as a citizen of South Africa. So what I would like to just say is thank you very, very much for joining us, and we, we will see you at 9 o'clock next Tuesday for the IRR show. Thank you and goodbye.